Every search you make, every click you take, they'll be watching you. Tired of companies like Google and Facebook watching everything you do online? There's actually a simple solution. DuckDuckGo. It's an all-in-one privacy app with a built-in private search engine, web browser, one-click data clearing, email protection, and more. All for free. Download the app today and get the most comprehensive privacy protection with the push of a button. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Hello, everyone. This is Rosie Tran, and welcome to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weibo.tv special report sponsored by our friends at DuckDuckGo. You may have heard my voice at the end of every episode on Weibo.tv. I'm the one asking you to leave a review. Which, by the way, I hope you've done, right? You've left us a review? Okay, great. Unless you're lying. <clears throat> well, I'm a lot more than a voice. I'm also Weibo.tv's intrepid reporter, and over the course of this miniseries, I'm going to share with you short, actionable tips you can use to protect your privacy. These tips were sourced by our fearless leader, he really hates when we call him that, BJ Mendelson. BJ, for those of you who may not know, is the author of the book Privacy and How We Get It Back, a book that was published in the before times. This means before COVID. BJ is currently writing a sequel called How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. So everything we're going to hear in this miniseries is the most up-to-date information he's researched, bringing us into 2023 and beyond. Throughout the series, you're also going to hear from some special guests and experts in the information security field. You hear that sound? That means it's time for today's privacy tip. This week's privacy tip is a short but important one. We want you to set up a Google alert for your name and any other handles you go by. So for example, BJ's actual name is Brandon Mendelson, but Brandon Mendelson is a mouthful. So we shortened it to BJ for TV and radio interviews. That means BJ has two Google alerts set up, one for his actual name and one for his stage name. For our trans friends in particular, we want to stress the importance of setting up multiple Google Alerts to cover both your current name and your dead name. But this is the tactic that works for everyone. You can set up an alert by visiting google.com alerts and entering your name. This is super important when you're dealing with fascists and weirdos who have targeted you for harassment. Something we'll focus on more once we wrap up the medical portion of this show. These Google Alerts will help you track what they're saying about you, as well as the day and date it was posted, as well as a link all of which is important for documentation purposes. You can also use tools like hunch.ly to log and capture all instances of harassment. Hunch.ly is also a terrific research tool for journalists, but for the purposes of our show, we're recommending it for people who are being stalked and harassed that need to document that harassment. Hunch.ly, in a very basic sense, logs everything that you browse on your computer. This way, you don't have to worry about taking screenshots and making sure you don't lose them. Related to Hunch.ly is a program called PageVault, as of this recording, PageVault is one of the few programs that if you use to record and document harassment can be admissible in a court of law. So if you've gotten to the point where you're talking to lawyers about people stalking and harassing you online, you'll want to discuss the use of PageVault for documentation. We'll discuss how to document harassment by creeps and weirdos in the last few episodes of the show, but we're not quite at the end just yet. That's because BJ's audio got jacked up during his interview with Dr. Arthur Kaplan. We weren't kidding last week when we said BJ upset an ancient deity, although we're still not sure which one. BJ was mumbling something about a volcano, but I tuned him out because a rerun of NCIS New Orleans was about to come on. Long story short, you're all getting an extra episode of the show, and here it is. Dr. Kaplan is a professor of bioethics at New York University. 
He's also the founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU. BJ asked me to re-record the question he asked Dr. Kaplan so that you can enjoy the full interview. So let's get it started. Can you tell us what bioethics is for people who may not be familiar with the field? Well, medicine has always paid attention to its ethics. Going back to the 19th century, you can find all kinds of codes of ethics for doctors. But they were basically codes of professional behavior. Wear a tie, don't charge your colleagues, uh, you know, make sure that you uh, are properly trained. You might think of that as the era of professionalism. But really, in the uh, late 1960s, early 1970s, a variety of issues began to crop up, if you will, fueled by medicine or driven by medicine, but not within medicine. And what I mean by that is we began to see technologies like kidney dialysis uh, coming online to help people who had kidney failure, the machines that will cleanse your blood. But there weren't many machines, and decisions had to be made about who to give them to, and they weren't purely medical. They were partly value judgments. So you're going to give them to people with jobs. You're going to give them to men over women. Doctors didn't have any special insight into such questions, and they began to ask for help. Similarly, believe it or not, abortion was a big issue back then, pre-Roe versus Wade, and there were lots of arguments about who should have access and uh, how would that be handled and this sort of thing. And there were fights going on about new technologies like organ transplantation. Didn't have enough organs. Who's going to get them? How do you know when someone's dead if you can maintain them on a machine? The traditional definition is when your heart stops. But if you can kind of keep that going artificially, what do lawyers, what does society want to say? That's where bioethics got going. It was through invitations from medicine, nursing, to come in and help resolve these kinds of questions. So bioethics has always been a little bit technology-driven. Today we see it with xenografts using pigs as sources of organs. Is that okay to do? Should we resurrect dead pigs? <laughs> Does that mean that we can resurrect us someday? And then uh, you've got issues that come up too now, obviously, about doing research in poor countries. There are new questions that are arising about vaccines. Should we mandate them? Do we compel people to vaccinate their kids? What about themselves? How much evidence is sufficient to approve a new vaccine? What's called emergency use authorization. So I'm going to say bioethics continues to be linked to managing or thinking through new technologies, new techniques, cloning, sometimes health policy questions. What are we going to do about poor Americans with no coverage, what's fair, what are we going to do about international differences. And in my own program at NYU, we teach courses. We have a master's degree in bioethics. We have research projects on many topics where we have groups of 10, 12 people from different fields working to address an issue. And we have a lot of consulting with patient advocacy groups and sometimes industry and sometimes unions and sometimes the Gates Foundation where they get into ethics questions. It's a pretty lively field, never boring. Uh, <laughs> always something going on that's driving people crazy. Can you tell us how technology changed the field of bioethics and the management of medical information? What are the issues that can be caused? as just one example, by the use of algorithms to sort this data? Well, 
With the tech companies appearing, a number of shifts have taken place in healthcare. When I was at Columbia Medical School, somewhere in the 16th century, everybody was using paper charts and paper records. It wouldn't be uncommon for someone to be made sick because of a penmanship error. It wouldn't be uncommon to lose a chart and have to start all over again with tests. Today, we've got the rise of the electronic medical record. Every hospital system worldwide is built on somebody's algorithm and programming for uh, keeping tabs on patients electronically. Well, that's good. It's efficient. As I say, it's probably safer for the patients uh, than trying to rely on sort of Charles Dickens pen and paper <laughs> kind of record keeping. But um, there are costs. As you rightly point out, third parties may be able to access this data without your knowledge. So a good example is all the genetic testing that goes on with Ancestry and 23andMe. They're not really interested in figuring out whether you're Estonian or Tanzanian or something. What they want is your data. And so when you sort of do this as fun or as a lark, they're kind of collecting data to sell it to uh, big drug companies. They'll use that data to try and figure out what drugs work in what groups. Okay, but you're not getting any money. And unless you're really pretty eagle-eyed, you're not going to read the fine print that says you're giving permission to do this. Um, and so for most people, there's a lot of their DNA or DNA information that's in third-party hands. And it's there kind of with their permission, but I don't think they really understood what they were signing up for when they said, I wonder if I'm Bulgarian or something. So... Um, there's that. There are many, many programs starting to appear to supplement the doctor's judgment, meaning algorithms that do decision making. If you have XYZ symptoms, can a machine aid the doctor in deciding what condition you have? But those algorithms are usually built on rich white people's experiences. There's not like a lot of data on Korean Americans or certain uh, Native American populations. Um, and so there's bias in the algorithms. And that can be pretty harmful in terms of proper diagnosis or treatment if you rely <clears throat> on incomplete data that's in the algorithms. And I'll give you one more area where sort of big data has been uh, on the move in a rapid, rapid way. Many of these companies are starting to get into the healthcare delivery business direct, you know, treatment, they're going to work with CVS, let's say they run a health clinic, say Google's going to do that or uh, another big tech company. Well, that could be convenient, better to be able to get in to get a vaccination or maybe a blood pressure check at the CVS. But it also means for those of you who use Walgreens or CVS or these big box pharmacies, we already know that they're targeting ads to you based on their record keeping. If you say, get an order for uh, some medication related to pregnancy, you absolutely will start getting ads for diapers. I mean, they're watching the connections and pushing ads. Maybe you like that. Maybe you don't like that. Maybe you don't want people to know that you're getting treatment for mental illness or that you have a venereal disease or who knows, or many alcoholism. There are a lot of uh, stigmatized diseases, rightly or wrongly, that 
people don't necessarily want others to know about. So if you're getting your health care through your work and the HR department is looking at your medical records to pay your bills, they're looking at some of the things that this CBS Google Alliance is now saying you have to reimburse. So again, a loss of privacy, a loss of uh, confidentiality about sensitive things. The old days, the doctor knew, doctor was kind of sworn to secrecy. I'm not sure the chief information officer at Google is sworn to the same secrecy about how to handle your information. Can you tell us what HIPAA is and what is covered and what is not covered? Sure. Well, one thing that's interesting about HIPAA was enacted in 1996. It was created before Google. It has no sensitivity to electronic data maneuvering, data sets, big data set collection. It's built on the world of paper, paper trails. And it basically says your information should not be shared based on paper records with anybody who's not caring for you or not involved in billing for your care. But if you sign up with Google and in the tiny print, it says, yeah, it's okay. You're going to give this information to third parties for research or for advertising or marketing, then you're waving away any protection rights. HIPAA, I'm not even sure, would know what to do if somebody said, we're going to data share for efficiency, a big data set. Is that part of the provision of care? Is that covered by HIPAA? It's not clear. HIPAA needs an update. It's way, way, way out of date, and I would not rely on it these days for any kind of privacy other than you're not supposed to mention somebody's name on the elevator and you're not supposed to yell out names at the check-in desk at the hospital. But beyond that, it's not really geared up for what's going on. I'm a Facebook hipster. I then deleted my Facebook account and then re-upped it in 2005 and have not been able to get off the stupid thing since. So so why can't you get off? So what, <laughs> what are your... <laughs> you guys. The award-winning Smashing Security Podcast, hosted by Graham Cluley and Carol Terrio each week. It takes an irreverent look at cybersecurity and online privacy. Helping you find out what's happening with your data. Find it in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps, or at smashingsecurity.com. It's not all filth. Tell us about Amazon's purchase of One Medical and their attempts to break into the healthcare industry and what the ramifications of that may be. Well, again, Amazon is a company known for marketing. I use them. If I'm going to order, you know, a carpet or some kind of uh, uh, paper for my printer or something like that, uh, I'm over there and they're very good about getting things out. And if I want to pay a little more, they'll get me prime service and all the rest of it. They know every purchase I've ever made. They know everything about me. They could absolutely describe me as well as any of my relatives could based on a history of consumer purchasing. When you add in all your healthcare stuff, and I'm not just talking about drugs, I'm talking about Band-Aids or over-the-counter ulcer medicine or, you know, if you have uh, some sort of migraine problems and on and on it goes, they're going to know all this. 
it's inside the company now. It's one thing to say we won't share it with somebody else, but now when it's internalized, and then if they also start to own the doctors and the nurses and the pharmacists, then they have access to all of those records too. So that's what I mean when I say we haven't really built adequate protections, barriers, or maybe we don't care, but at least we could debate the whole thing um, about how Amazon or any uh, of the big tech companies is going to push directly into the provision of healthcare, how they manage information. As we all know, places like Facebook, they live on knowing our preferences. They live on tracking us all the time. I'm not naive. I know that my cell phone and my dining records and Uber records could tell people a lot about me and where I go and what I'm doing. And I haven't stopped using them, even though I'm giving them a lot of information about me. That may become the attitude that people take toward healthcare and just say, I live with it, don't care. If it gives me a better access to healthcare, I don't have to get a doctor's appointment and go to the local drugstore or a quick clinic and get in faster. And they have all my records there because they know everything about me. I'll, that'll be fine. Okay. All I'm calling for is much more open, transparent discussion of what you want to trade off. I'll add one other thing. It's interesting to me when I talk about privacy here like this, people over 50 up to ancient years like mine tend to get a little more worked up about privacy. We're talking to under 30s and you sort of say, you know, people know stuff about you. I might get a response like everybody on TikTok is saying me naked or everyone that I talk to on Instagram knows where I take vacations or they know when I'm away and I don't expect any privacy. It may be slipping away already. What would you tell women who are concerned about the current post-Roe world and the data that's being shared about them? Well, look, many women engage in either attempts to get pregnant or attempts to avoid pregnancy by monitoring the time of their menstrual periods. And there are many apps that you punch in information and pretty soon you get a pattern and it's going to say... You're going to ovulate in three days, and you may say, great, that's time for me to try to have a baby, or <clears throat> um, I'm not going to have sex during that period because I don't want a baby. All of that information is pretty personal. But if you have states that say you're not going to be allowed to have an abortion here under any circumstances, and a few states are in that camp, rape, incest, etc., then if they can subpoena your records and find out, I wonder if... You did have sex when you were meant, uh, ovulating. Um, and what happened to that baby? Did you go somewhere and get an abortion or we don't see any babies? Or So the state can start to poke around in your uh, medical record and using these tracking apps, see whether you're taking day after pills, see whether you've had uh, a termination of a pregnancy. That can be criminal. I mean, you can go to jail. It's a felony in some of these states. Plus, it can also implicate your doctor or your primary care nurse, and they may not want to care for you because they're all of a sudden they're at legal exposure. and They're saying, well, don't use that app anymore. So that's one big area where privacy over sensitive behavior all of a sudden has been criminalized, uh, maybe 
the ability to make choices taken away. More broadly, you've got uh, just general record keeping to see whether you're on contraception, you have uh, had some sort of counseling, maybe you say you got raped. Does the state get to step in and say, well, maybe you were raped, but be sure you have that baby because, you know, we see from your records that you've been seeing a counselor and the diagnosis here is sexual assault or domestic abuse or something like that. So that really did change the game, I think, for a lot of people. It was one thing to say, well, what do I care if Google or some other big tech company knows that uh, I buy a bottle of aspirin and some talcum powder every week. I I just don't care. Now, maybe you do care. How are doctors adjusting to this new world where they may face legal risk in providing abortion access and care? We've already seen it. There have definitely already been choices made to say, you're carrying a baby that isn't viable. Normally, we'd end that pregnancy because the baby's going to die and there's nothing that can be done about it. But we're not going to do that. You're going to have to deliver that baby, which seems crazy. Um, because we can't end pregnancies early, even if the fetus can't live. So it has begun. I think many doctors are trying to think, how far will I go to lie in my medical records in order to help my patient who may want to do something that is against the law in my state? Uh, Others are thinking, unless the local prosecutor says, I'm not going after that, then I'm not doing that. So again, we see it with Donald Trump. We see it with many political figures. Prosecutors have discretion as to whether they want to enforce the law. It may be that in a big medical area like Houston, Texas, prosecutors are not going to do anything with this information. It's just too big a business. And there are too many doctors and they don't want to tangle with them. But if you live out in, you know, a rural county in Waco, Texas, uh, maybe they are willing to cross swords with the doctors, the nurses, hospital trustees, um, different game. By the way, this also gets into things where states are getting, some states are getting nervous about uh, transitioning from one gender to another. They hate it. They trying to ban it. Some don't even like taking care of somebody who's admittedly out as gay. Um, there are a lot of uh, phobias and bigotry, in my view, where, again, this is all tracked in your medical charts, could be mental health, could be physical health, um, and prosecutors, DAs sort of looking around saying, well, we're just going to subpoena all that. It's nice that Amazon says we have a policy of not sharing, but they're not going to resist a subpoena. What can be done with HIPAA? I think HIPAA is useless. I mean, not not helpful at all. It doesn't really anticipate the electronic world. It doesn't anticipate not having to get permission to share if you own everything from the patient to the doctor to the clinic and the records are all internal to the company. There's no HIPAA is a little bit about third party sharing of information. And if it's all a monopoly within an entity, there's no... HIPAA wouldn't get in there. So to me, I think you need to first start the discussion and say, what are the possible penalties? We talked about dangers in making reproductive choices. Maybe there are dangers in terms of losing your job if you turn out to be a heavy healthcare user and nobody wants to hire you. 
maybe there are dangers if you are shown to have an alcohol problem or drug problem, you can't get a job, can't be in the military, maybe you don't want that known. Um, talk about what the dangers are so people understand them and then let them decide whether they care or not. As we were saying, it may still be that they just say, you know, the wonders of having um, big data, getting uh, medicine that's targeted to me using this data so that I don't take a pill that won't work so well for someone of my genetic background or my biological background. That's worth it. I don't, I've got nothing to hide and I don't care. Um, I doubt there are many of those people on earth, but maybe we could find a few of them. Um, once you figure out what the dangers are, then I think you got to start to legislate. And I would just say three basic things to start. One, informed consent should be clear, not buried in tiny type. If you're giving up your rights. If they're going to sell your data to third parties like the gene testing companies. It should be in the big print right up at the top, not buried on page 17 of a 20-page form that no one will see. Second, you may have to ask the companies to provide you with a privacy officer, privacy guidance, where they could put what you're at risk of if you deal with us, what we protect, what we don't, and you can talk to somebody about whether you have questions. I mean, I think giving some counseling is important in this area. A lot of people don't really understand much about big data or resale of data, and they may want to follow up with questions. Third, there may be vulnerable groups, prisoners who get signed up by a company who don't have any rights to choose anything. They're just in there. Are we going to legislate to protect them? Uh, people who are incompetent, let's say, due to developmental disabilities, there are large swaths of children, there are large swaths of people they're not going to make this choice to be in the data set or not. They need someone to look out for them and say, you know, once I go on parole, you can't keep collecting my healthcare data. What is something you think about a lot when it comes to privacy as it relates to health and medicine? Well, I'll tell you, it's an interesting area. I think we are focused in a lot these days on genes, genetic information. What can you learn from a genetic test? We are starting to test even embryos and fetuses for diseases and traits. But what people aren't paying attention to is the same things going on with the brain. We have scans. We have a much better ability to figure out what's going on in your head when you have certain thoughts, when you have certain feelings, when you have certain dispositions, habits, addictions. Brain scanning is getting very sophisticated. We have a lot of ability to do it more quickly. And I think people are building up, if you will, data banks on our brains. You know, the distance from your genes to your behavior is pretty far. The distance from your brain to your behavior is pretty tight. <laughs> and so if you could study people's brains, and the Chinese are doing this, you could see them starting to scan facial recognition, link it up to maybe medical records where people have brain scans because they're criminals, this sort of thing, gets to be pretty powerful stuff. So the area I worry about, it has a name in bioethics, we call it neuroethics. And I think that's going to become a very hot subject in the next 10, 20 years. People are going to say, you know, you come to the doctor's office, I want to scan your brain. I want to see, are you disposed or is your son disposed to alcoholism or depression or violence or whatever. And it may only be a risk factor. It doesn't mean it's a guarantee. Um, and people sort of say, well, wait a minute, who gets to see that? My teachers? 
my religious leaders, my boss, the military, who's looking at all this? For women that are concerned about their data being shared by pregnancy trackers, what would you tell them? Yeah, I'm going to tell you, wait a couple of months and watch for new apps to appear (laughs) that are run by feminist groups that are going to say, you can use our app and we're going to be trusted and don't buy the -the over-the-counter stuff. Yeah, I think that's coming. Most things people hate about the internet comes from a lack of privacy, like those creepy ads that make you think your phone is listening to you. DuckDuckGo is an all-in-one privacy app that can help you with that. It's your internet browser with private search, tracking blocker, encryption, and even built-in email protection, all for free. Just go to DuckDuckGo.com to learn more. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified. Thank you for listening to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weiwo.tv special report. I'm your host, Rosie Tran. Today's episode was written by BJ Mendelson, produced by Andrew Van Voris, and sponsored by DuckDuckGo. Due to the overwhelming demand for privacy audits, we want to make a quick announcement before we go. Doing one-on-one privacy audits is super time-consuming. This means BJ has less time to write these episodes and the new book, How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. So... Along with his co-author, Amanda King, BJ is currently putting together an online course called Stupid Sexy Privacy, which you'll be able to purchase here at stupidsexyprivacy.com. The course will walk you through every privacy tactic discussed in today's episode in greater detail. If you'd like to know when the course becomes available, you can email BJ at bjmendelson at duck.com. The email address again is bjmendelson at duck.com. And we'll see you next time, right? Right?